0: I'm, uh, before we get started on this week's message, I want to talk about next week. We start 80 weeks in Jonah, and I'm just kidding. It's it'll be much shorter. But next week, we start a new series called Swimming Lessons, the Story of Jonah. And I'm very excited about this uh, series. Uh, it's a completely different feel from the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> it's a really cool story. Some call it a parable. It is not a parable. It's a story, and it's a great story. And there's so much for us to learn from the book of Jonah about God's sovereignty, about how God just keeps coming after us no matter what, and about how once God has a call on your life, in the end, you have no choice but to fulfill it, which is a tremendous blessing because if it was left to us, we would not. Amen? So that's starting next week. But this week is a very important week in the life of our church. It's week number 80 and final week. In our series on the Gospel of Mark, I've titled this one, uh, Your Name Here, The Evangelist. Isn't that clever? (laughs) So have you ever wondered, now this is an important question. So have you ever wondered if you could truly trust the scriptures as reliable as a source of truth, particularly when it relates to the New Testament? I mean, we've spent all this time in Mark Would it be a pity if you weren't sure if you could trust what Mark says? Of course, in any decent church, there are some churches that don't teach you can trust the Scripture, but in a decent church, that's what we're told to do, right? Just trust the Scripture. It is inspired. It is reliable. It is accurate. It has been preserved by God. Just trust it. And for many people, trusting the authority of Scripture is just something you do. Because that's what you're told to do. Trust Scripture. But don't you want to know why? I mean, I guess to a degree, it's okay just to blindly trust Scripture, I guess. But if someone asks you to explain, why do you trust the New Testament? Like, why would the Gospel of Mark be something you'd want to study for 80 ridiculous weeks? Where would you begin? Why would you be able to tell them that you have trust? What seems to be blind trust in Scripture, in that matter, for Jesus? And could you tell them in a way that has a personal touch? See, I want you to understand something. There are reasons we can trust our New Testament. Reasons that I'm going to unfold for you today, particularly in the book of Mark and the history of how it was written, that are almost not as miraculous as the resurrection, but they're almost certainly as miraculous as it it required God's intervention for sure. And that brings us to our last section in the book of Mark, and it's a bigger chunk than normal. I want you to know, before we start reading verses 9 through 20, there's overwhelming evidence that this portion of Mark was added later. Mark didn't write it. But it doesn't mean there's no value to it. In fact, what you'll find today is the scientific process that allows us to see why we can trust what we've studied in the last 79 sermons also gives us reasons why we know this wasn't written by Mark, but also has value. Today we will also get an understanding of why and how this section was added by scribes years after Mark was probably dead in 68 A.D. We will explore how this unusual apocryphal passage, apocryphal means it is a story that cannot be verified, but is most of the time presented as true. That's what this section is. It's an apocryphal section. We're going to explain how this unusual apocryphal section in the Gospel of Mark actually affirms the preciousness and the reliability of our Gospel of Mark. It is, in fact, these last 12 verses, a precious testimony to the stunning impact that Mark's gospel had, not only just in the church, but the whole first century world. So with that in mind, let's read this. And you'll notice in some of your Bibles, it starts with this in brackets here. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 19 through 20. So let's read it. Now when he rose up early, you can see how they begin it with brackets. Now when he rose up early on the first day of the week, he appeared, he's talking about Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. And as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they still did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the 11, the other 11 disciples themselves, as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, end bracket. let look at the history of this. I want you to understand that this is definitely scribal additions, these 12 verses. You'll see I've entitled this first section in historical, I've called it brackets. Most of you will see in your Bible or your Bible app that if those verses appear, there's brackets around them with footnotes explaining how they know it was added later. These verses were definitely not written by Mark. They were added many years later. Mark, by the way, had ample opportunity to add to his gospel if he wanted, but he didn't. We know this, up to 100 A.D., which would be about 65, 66 years, 67 years after Jesus died, all known copies of Mark stopped at verse 8, where we ended last week. The problem is, we didn't know those manuscripts existed until late in the 19th century when they were found. It's a pretty fascinating story. So until then... Bibles like the King James Version, which was written in 1611, used manuscripts that went back to 350 A.D. That was the earliest manuscripts we had. And it didn't have brackets around it because everybody just assumed, well, that's part of the Gospel of Mark. But then these older manuscripts were found. And Mark proved to be even more reliable, and I'll explain to that in a little bit. These older manuscripts became the foundation for many of our modern-day Bibles, the New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, which we use here at Grace Life, the NIV, etc. What this passage is, these 12 verses, <clears throat> it is a patchwork of stories the scribes felt could enhance Mark's gospel as it was being circulated in the early churches. Remember, it was the first gospel written, so it was a very important gospel. Mark wrote it from Peter's perspective, and a lot of people wanted to get their hands on this thing, and some scribes felt like, you know, it kind of ends weird in verse 8. So let's just add a few more things. Now, they took all the details. They didn't make this stuff up out of whole cloth. They took all the details from other portions of other gospels in Matthew in Luke and in John, and they even took some in Acts chapter 28, verse 3. That's the story where Paul was preaching, and because they started a fire, a snake was in the the fire pit, and it jumped out, and it didn't bite him, and he didn't die. And that's kind of where that's all taken from, a story of Paul, even though it seems like a bizarre thing. Snakes and poison, what are they talking about? It was taken from Acts 28, 3. But what we know is there is plenty of evidence that these these verses, the conclusion, that they aren't original. And we learn this from this, and I know that some of you are going to already start glazing over, but please don't, it's very important, because when we're done, you're going to know why you can trust your Bible every time you open it. We know these aren't part of the original Gospel of Mark because of an archaeological discipline they call textual criticism. What textual criticism is, it is the study of volumes and volumes of ancient manuscripts that are copies of one thing. And what you do is you go through and you find all the variants, all the mistakes, all the differences within them. And the older your manuscripts are and the more alike they are, the more consistent, the better it is. And if a variant they find, if there's a mistake and it's not significant or it's not repeated more than once in the thousands of other manuscripts you might have, you realize, okay, clearly that was a mistake. It's not repeated anywhere. It's seen as an error or some sort of addition. This is an exhaustive process allowing us to determine the difference between a scribal edit or error and the actual original manuscript. And this is possible with the New Testament, and you're going to be blown away by this later. This is all possible with our New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Mark. Because we have massive, massive amounts of New Testament manuscripts that we have uncovered. More on that later. Therefore, we have high confidence that the verses I just read to you, verses 9 through 20, were definitely added later. And in fact, it occurs in no manuscripts that we have found prior to 350 A.D. So this did not show up in copies of Mark until after 350 A.D., almost 300 years after Jesus. And most date that these editions were probably written in the early 2nd century, long after Mark is dead. But I personally am fully satisfied with the way Mark's gospel ends in verse 8. Some say, well, clearly something's missing. I don't believe there was. But these verses have value. And now I want to get to something that's really fun. I spent a lot of time on this section this week. I'm going to call this the spiritual section, How God's Word Endures. And the first thing I want you to see is we really truly have some miraculous manuscripts. You want to know why you can trust the Old Testament? Well, church, now if you're here or watching at home on YouTube or Facebook, this is the time. Listen up. Take a sip of coffee. Get your attention. Listen carefully. You're going to come away today understanding, wow, every time I read my Bible, I know I can trust it. Don't drift off. Let's start with these verses right here that are promises from God. Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That's a good one. And one from the New Testament. Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Think about that for a moment. Think about those promises. Think about the importance that God keeps those promises. Can you imagine if God didn't keep that promise? Okay. Now that you understand the importance, are you ready? There's this thing called a telephone pole test. The idea of it is this. The more telephone poles you have, the further you can send an original message across those telephone pole wires. You get that? So the more telephone poles you have, the better your telephone service would be. Now, of course, it's all cellular now, so now we'll say cell tower test, okay? But before, when they started talking about this, it was the telephone pole test. Understand, we don't have any original manuscripts of anything written in the first century. Of anything, not just the New Testament. Because before 1500, which was the invention of the printing press, everything was handwritten, starting with originals and then copies of the original, then copies of the copies, and then copies of the copies of the copies, and and that's how things were preserved. Here's what's miraculous. Christianity, from about 70 A.D. of the destruction of the temple, which, remember, Jesus predicted on the Mount of Olives. We talked about that incredible prophecy. From 70 A.D. to 350 A.D., Christianity was illegal. So the process of copying all the scriptures was a decentralized dangerous voluntary job it was sort of like if you will a scribal black market people were copying these verses in secret in private didn't want people to know because they get turned over to the Jews or to the Romans they're killed and the manuscripts are burned unlike the quran for example the quran was preserved by a very well funded centralized authoritarian process in one place and they have Far fewer manuscripts of the Quran than we have the New Testament. More on that later. Here's the problem. Armies and emperors and kings and rulers sought to destroy the church and all of its writings and all of its copies. This was clearly spiritual warfare. The enemy wanted to stamp out this movement of Christianity because it was going to save souls. And so from 70 A.D. till about 325 A.D., When the Emperor Constantine finally made Christianity legal, it was just massive persecution. It was illegal to worship. It was illegal to read. It was certainly illegal to copy. Guess what? They all failed. Because here's what we know. There are almost today almost 25,000 New Testament, Testament ancient manuscripts in existence that we have found it is 40 times more than the next closest. You know what the next closest is? You all ever heard of Homer's Iliad? 643 copies. That's the next closest. You'll see here some of these other telephone poles. Julius Caesar, pretty important guy. We have 10 copies of the stuff he wrote. 10. That's Rome. Plato. People love Plato. Plato. They never question what Plato says. Seven copies. Tacitus, you know who that is? That is the most famous Roman historian and one of the famous, most famous Roman politicians ever. Twenty copies. 24,633 copies of an illegal movement's writings. That number itself is miraculous, agreed? just you see the understanding there, the result of some sort of powerful, organic movement that was committed to the teachings of Jesus. So I asked a mathematician friend of mine this week who went to Wharton, I asked him his odds, because he's really good at odds. You know, like, you know, Joe, you'll never be able to do that. He said that to me a lot. Like, (laughs) odds. I asked him to give me his odds of this many congruent ancient New Testament manuscripts surviving 2,000 years, especially when they were illegal the first 300 years of their existence and everybody wanted to destroy them. Right? You see the numbers there. Caesar 10, Plato 7, Tacitus 20, almost 25,000 for us. He gave me the odds. You ready? New Testament survival odds? 1.5 billion to 1. 1. 1.5 billion. So... You know what the odds are of the mega millions winning that? There you go. 302,575,350 to 1. So there's something else. I want to give you this perspective. Some people put a lot of hope in the lottery tickets for purpose of happiness if i can just win this i'll be satisfied <laughs> they'd rather do that than read and trust in the new testament or jesus i'm going to tell you right now trusting in a lottery ticket over the new testament is mathematically irrational each discovered ancient text has been exhaustively analyzed by people who hate jesus and people who love jesus it's been analyzed for accuracy And consistency with incredible transparency, just as they are with any other text ancient that we find. And because New Testament manuscripts, and now I'm going to make sure you understand this, because they're hand copied, there are tons of errors but they're easy to pinpoint because we have so many manuscripts, right? A wrong word here, a misspelling there, word order here and there, some sort of punctuation. It's easily noticed and clarified because we have thousands of other texts without that same mistake. I explained that to you earlier. They find a mistake and it's not repeated. We know that clearly that's a mistake. This vast array of manuscripts, even with some of the copy errors, these black market scribes, remember, they're doing it under pressure and duress, This vast array allows textual scholars, both those who love Jesus and those who hate Jesus, they believe they have been able to reconstruct the New Testament, would get this. You ready? 99.9% accuracy to the original manuscript. Because of the voluminous manuscripts we have to work with. No other ancient writing can even come close. They think that Tacitus' writing is about 38%. Caesar, about 3% possibility that it's accurate. Just an example. That's not just Christian textual scholars saying this. It's thousands of secular scholars that agree. That's amazing. So why is this important? Pastor Joe, why are you boring us with textual criticism? Here's why. You ready? 400,000 variants in these 25,000 texts. 1% of them are repeated. Just 1% of 400,000 variants are repeated. And of those that are repeated, only 0.02, one-fifth of 1%, are controversial. Text that might change the meaning somehow. The odds of that happening, I talked to my mathematician friend from Warden. what are the odds of that? His words, he stopped for a minute. This guy's really good at numbers. Like if you're ever in a room in a business meeting with him, which I have been. And you don't know the numbers, don't pretend like you know because you don't. He does. Like he's really good. So we stopped for a minute because normally he just fires them off, right? It was silent for 20 seconds. I said, are you still there? He goes, yeah, I'm thinking. He said it's incalculable. He said it's like the stars in the sky to one. And Here's what he said. The only rational explanation is intelligent, transcendent intervention. Those were his words. Guys, let me just tell you how amazing this is. And my wife will tell you, I can't even copy or read the the original manuscript of her shopping list without making (laughs) some sort of mistake. Right, Laura? Every time. You're supposed to get two, not one. Oh, got to go back. Restart it. Let me see the original. Are you sure? Yes, it's right there. Yet some people would rather build a whole life on a philosophy with ancient writings that are remotely inferior to our New Testament. Even how the variants and the mistakes play out is further affirmation of the majesty and the miracle of our New Testament scriptures. And because of that, we can see why this was inspired. God used Mark to inspire people. Mark's original ending is dramatic, is it not, in verse 8. It's inspirational. It's powerful. Remember the verb we learned last week? Stunning. Amazed. Remember, this was the first gospel written. And God used it in a massive way in the early church. It was, in fact, for a time, the most precious gospel adored and treasured writing in the early church for so many reasons. God used it, in fact, to inspire Matthew and Luke and John to write their Gospels. And no doubt the scribes who made the copies of Mark were also transformed and stunned by the power of this story as they read and worked. I know I have been. Can you imagine volunteering to copy this Gospel of Mark to make sure to send it to people you know in other churches because they've got to read it. It's not like you can go on Amazon or go on their Bible app and get it. This is the only way. We've got a copy. We don't want to send them our own copy. We've got to make a copy, maybe two or three, and send it to them. It's a lot of work. Can you imagine volunteering to make these copies and how reading it would impact you and the gravity of the importance of the job that you're doing? You'd be so excited about this gospel of Mark. I cannot wait for the church in Ephesus to get this gospel of Mark. I've got to get it done. You'd be so excited that you probably couldn't help but add a few of your thoughts of your own at the end. By the way, I want you to know I finished doing this copy and there are some other things that happened and it just amazed me. I believe that's what happened with Mark. Because they're thinking, look, what if, and they they have no idea what's going to happen with with Matthew and Luke and John. They don't know about all the things that Paul's going to do and James and Peter. What if this is the only writing, the only writing this church ever reads? We should probably give them just a little bit more just in case. let's just add a few facts at the end. Now, these facts are verified in other writings, so they didn't just make them up, and they don't change the story of the gospel of Mark at all. It is motivated, these additional 12 verses, it's motivated by, motivated by their love and their passion for the story of Jesus, which brings me to the personal section this week, your own personal gospel. This was, I didn't really do a sermon preview this week, but I did this probably on Tuesday because I was just so emotionally... I was so emotionally impacted by the fact that, wow, this is is our last sermon on Mark. And this is what I wrote. This week is my 80th and final sermon on the gospel of Mark. I'm struggling for words that describe my emotions, except to say they're nothing like what I expected. So let me start off with what your pastor's hope is for you after we've gone through this. And by the way, if you've missed some of them, they're all on the YouTube channel and the podcast. You can catch them anytime. Unlike you, I've had a privilege, a weekly platform that has allowed me to tell you how Mark has impacted my heart. My sermons, believe it or not, are not inspired or infallible. They are my personal experience based upon my intense, deep study of the original gospel of Mark. I will tell you, what the gospel of Mark has done for me spiritually in my own life, there is so much that I have left out each week because I only have like 30 to 35 minutes with you. There's so much I've left out. I could go back, and don't freak out when I say this, I could go back and preach just what it has done for me for another four months. Don't worry, I'm not doing that. Mark number 81 is not happening. The series has had such a massive impact on me as your pastor. I would be incredibly disappointed and discouraged if you saw it as just another series. Time to move on. See, Mark makes it very clear <clears throat> who Jesus is. And if your idea of Jesus does not line up with Mark's Jesus, you've got the wrong Jesus. Because we have 99.9% verified scientific archaeological evidence that Mark's. Gospel is original. We've seen these incredible prophecies that even the greatest atheists cannot deny that Jesus prophesied, and about 33 years later, they were all fulfilled. Through it all, we've seen our precious Jesus display humor. We've seen him display anger, like in the temple when he turned the tables over on the money changers. We've seen... Jesus experienced sorrow. We've experienced our precious Jesus feel betrayal. Pain, physical and emotional. We've seen our precious Jesus cry, like when Lazarus was dead and he resurrected him. We've even seen our precious Jesus experience death. And through it all, there's been a theme. He's Messiah. And my hope is that as we have taken a deep dive into the details, looking at the original languages, the original history, all these things, we've looked at archaeology, we looked at all these things, my hope is these verified stories of Jesus, which, by the way, have been uh, verified by many secular authors, we've talked about that throughout the series, that these have inspired you. My prayer, my hope, your pastor's hope is that they've transformed you. I'm certainly confident they've informed you. I really hope they've changed you. My hope is, with all this information and experience, you'd have much more you could say to others when Jesus comes up in conversation than you did before. From the miracles, the teachings, the prophecies, I hope you all have an opinion at least, a comment A story, just as the scribes and the early church were, you should have been by now significantly impacted by the gospel of Mark. I mean, how could you know the gospel of Mark and not be impacted and still call yourself a Christ follower? I don't know. Which brings me to this concept. I want to say that, you have some good news. Knowing this, what if you, just for a moment, what if you could write and add 12 verses to the Gospel of Mark today? Your own story, your own little details you want. Oh, and by the way, I want to tell you something what happened in 2020 or 2021 or, or 2019. What if you could add 12 verses? Something you would love people to know about your Jesus. Stuff that he's done for you or for your friends. I mean, if you know who Jesus is at all, you certainly should have something. You should have at least 12 verses you could write. Look what Paul says in Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Have you ever heard good news? I mean, not just good news and like, oh, cool, I got my stimulus check. I'm not talking about that. (laughs) I'm talking about like real good news that impacts you and many others around you. What was your first reaction when you heard this good news? Did you want to hide it? Oh, this is really good stuff, but I don't want to tell anyone. Did you want to keep it to yourself? Or did you want to be a part of this good news story? When you shared it with others, did you just repeat the headline and move on? Oh, by the way, blah, 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 that's great. Or was it more like, okay, listen, I want to add some context to you. Here's the news. Let me give you some more information. I was here when I heard it. This is how it made me feel. I was amazed. I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. Let me tell you what others felt or what others said. I could not believe how I felt. You didn't change the news at all. You gave them the good news, and you were celebrating it by sharing your own personal perspective. You're excited about how this news has impacted you, transformed you, changed you, and you said, listen, here's the news. Let me tell you how I felt. That's what's happening in verses 9 through 20. It's what should be happening with us, with this reliable, trustworthy, powerful story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Which brings me to the last point in this series. I've called it Your Great Commission. So my favorite verses in this extra section of verses 9 through 20 that weren't written by Mark, but written by scribes who love Jesus and were excited, are verses 14 and 20. In verse 14, Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. But then verse 20, he sends them to preach into all the world. So you have this, who are you? Why aren't you believing? Now go Preach. You remember how Mark's gospel, remember how this was a theme early on, and frankly all through it, Mark's gospel told us repeatedly how the disciples just couldn't get it. They were slow to understand who Jesus really was. They had conflicting doubts and conflicting thoughts. It was kind of like a process, right, sort of like this series. But once they got it, they couldn't shut up about Jesus. See, I believe many of you, even though you identified with Christ, I think some of you, since before this Gospel of Mark, you didn't really know your Jesus. I mean, you knew of him, and you know the Easter part. That's easy. You knew the virgin birth, the Christmas part. That's easy. Maybe you knew some parts in between about the fish. A lot of fish, bed them. That was good, right? <laughs> Healing people. That's good. But over the Gospel of Mark, we've learned so much about our Jesus. Some of you know more about Jesus now than you ever have. You see, the Great Commission that he gave them in verse 20, it's not just a command, you better go preach. Actually, the Great Commission is a supernatural, unavoidable response to discovering the real Jesus that Mark presents to us in his gospel. It's a natural result. Just like the apostles, once you have discovered who Jesus really is, whatever your process looks like, you're not going to be able to help but be a part of the Great Commission and go and preach everywhere. Yet, here's what's so beautiful about it. We aren't just robots parroting the headline. By the way, Jesus died for your sins and he resurrected. Isn't that great? Okay, talk to you later. See (laughs) you. That's not how we do it. You know what's so great about the gospel? It's so great about the Great Commission. It's so great about verses 9 through 20. We each have our own unique experience with the good news of Jesus. That's the beauty. I've already laid out for you how God has preserved the gospel. That's undeniable, right? The numbers, the statistics, the odds, the facts. Bottom line, you can say it's not true if you want. You're irrational. It's clearly true. The prophecies, all that stuff. But the beauty is God doesn't just preserve the gospel. He also unfolds the gospel through the human experience. Just as scribes couldn't resist adding their own passion to the narrative, so it should be with you. What you have experienced does not replace the gospel. It should not change the gospel. It doesn't transform the gospel. All it does is confirm, oh, it still works today. I love this because this is how God speaks through us to the rest of his children that he is calling. How will they hear without a preacher? That's you. You will be, once you learn who the Jesus of Mark is, you will be irresistibly inspired and called to be a part of the story. You'll have your own 12 verses. You will add it and you will proclaim it endlessly to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors, to your community, through missions, the rest of the world. And once you discover who the Jesus of the gospel of Mark is, you also become an evangelist, just like him, just like the scribes of verses 9 through 20. Jesus, we are so thankful that you allow us to know so much about you. We're so thankful that you moved in the heart of Mark to write this first gospel with its majesty, the way it moves so fast. Gives us such a great outline of everything you've done, everything you've said. We're thankful that you were patient with the disciples who took forever to find out who you were. But when they did, boy, they couldn't stop talking about you. And while we know it's not inspired scripture, we're thankful for how you worked in the hearts of the scribes that added these last 12 verses. Scribes who just loved you so much they couldn't help. Listen, we've got to give them more details. This is really good news. But Father, we're also thankful that you have undeniably Statistically proven that our New Testament is the second greatest miracle of all, the first being your resurrection. We are so in love with your word. We trust it. We rely on it. Our hope is in it. We're thankful that you have preserved it. But lastly, Father, we're so thankful that it's not just us being parrots and just memorizing lines. You unfold the gospel through the human experience, just like you did with Mark and Peter and the disciples and all those stories in Mark. You do it with us today. Inspire us. Equip us with the knowledge and the words so that just like Mark was called the evangelist, we can insert our name there too. Jesus, thank you for making us part of the gospel of Mark. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you guys have enjoyed this series. I know it's been a marathon. We've gone through a recession, a pandemic, one and a half elections, and a bunch of other stuff. (laughs) And all through it, Jesus has been there. Every week when we've come together, We just had the comfort of knowing (laughs) our Jesus is real and he's alive. Have a great week. We'll see you guys next week. Enjoy Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for everything.